Hello, and welcome to the Biblically Sound Woman podcast, where we are gospel-driven and scripture-focused. I am your host, Ayana Thomas, and I am so excited that you're joining us today for another episode on the show. I'm so happy to be back for another episode on the show. As I said earlier, uh, I'm really, really excited about today's show topic, episode topic, because this is literally something that has like taken over church culture and even like worldly culture too, because I see this so much online. Like I'll be scrolling through Twitter and I'll see... um, you know, like posts from just people retweeting different things. And I'll just see these things where um, believers that I follow are retweeting things from people that say things like, um, you know, I want my finances to be, you know, on top of things this year, I'm going to speak it into existence, or I have a job interview um, on Monday, I'm just going to speak this thing into existence, I know this is for me, blase, blase, blase. And what's so disheartening is that in that belief of being able to speak things into existence is also um, just a revelation or a revealing, if you will, of a lack of Bible literacy in the world today, and especially in a lot of different places within the church where you have people saying things because they read a couple of verses out of the Bible or they heard something taught in their church, or maybe it just was a thing in their family tradition growing up, and then they just regurgitate it. And then it becomes this big thing where everyone's saying things and it's just like, guys, the Bible actually says something about this. And it says something that we might not actually initially agree with. So that's what we're going to talk about in today's episode. We are going to discuss, can we speak things into existence? Uh, But before we do that, I would love to just kick off into this new little segment of each episode going forward that I will do. And that is a biblically sound resource for each episode. So um, from this point on, I will share maybe an article, a book, a book. A story in the Bible that I've come across as I've been studying, um, someone to follow, anything of that nature, um, maybe another podcast that I recommend, um, just to give you guys some biblically sound resources, because I know it's so easy to say, hey, you need to be making sure that you're, you know, reading people who are teaching biblical things or listening to people who are teaching biblical things or even giving church recommendations for different areas or around the country that I know of. So for this episode's biblically sound resource, it is what is is a healthy church member by the Beatty Anyabuile. He is actually my former pastor and he's like a dad to me. Um, and what's so funny is I'm actually recording this in our house right now, so that's kind of cool. <laughs> but um, I had to read this book for my new church. So when I moved from DC to Atlanta, um, I my fiance lives in Atlanta and is from there and Um, He attends and is a member of East Point Church, where uh, Pastor Anthony Carter is the lead pastor there. And so, um, of course, when I moved to Atlanta after we got engaged, um, or back to Atlanta, rather, because I did live there previously, um, of course, 
when we get married, I would be going to his church. So I've gone through membership and everything, and I'm like kind of on the tail end of that. But anyways, one of the required readings for our membership class was uh, what is a healthy church member? Um, and it's from the Nine Marks um, ministry, um, but uh, Pastor T wrote it. And it's such a short and concise book. Um, that's so helpful. I know a lot of times we can talk about what to look for in a church or, you know, try to find the, the key things like look for the gospel and eldership and health and community, discipleship, all of those things. But a lot of times we neglect looking at what we should look like as church members, because ultimately the church is comprised of people and the people of God and those who are in Christ. And so if we want to see healthy churches, we have to start with our, excuse me, with ourselves and be healthy church members, be healthy people, be a healthy body. And so this book addresses all of those areas in just such a, again, a short and concise way. And I really enjoyed reading it um, and I highly recommend it. Um, it's literally like, I think less than 130 pages. I know definitely less than 150 pages, but I know it's less than 130 pages. Um, and it's just going, you know, chapter by chapter um, and just, man, it's really good. And it really challenged me. Um, and I thought it was really cool that we had a, a recommended reading or excuse me, required reading um, for my former pastor. So I definitely recommend that book to you ladies. Check it out. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it in bookstores, just practically anywhere. And I will also link it in the show notes so you can order that, check it out if you'd like. Um, and again, I highly recommend it. It's a great little book that will really aid you as you are, um, you know, looking to really examine yourself and say, hey, I'm not just looking for the church to do things for me, but to be an aid and do things for the church um, and see how I can add to the body in a healthy and biblical way. So again, today we're going to examine what the Bible really says about speaking things into existence, who that ability really belongs to, and debunk some common interpretations of scripture that those who believe they can call things as though they are not often hold. I believe that scripture speaks so clearly on this issue and can free us up to worship God all the more by rightly understanding his word and context concerning the text we are going to dive into in today's episode. So feel free to follow along with the passages listed in the show notes. Have your Bible handy and a notepad because we are going to really dig into the text. So before we get started, I just want to throw out a couple of caveats um, just to kind of get us, you know, laying the foundation right before we dive into the text. And the first thing being that I know we're addressing the question, asking the question, can we speak things into existence? And I want to be plain and clear with you guys from the jump. The answer is no. We cannot speak things into existence. Um, and then secondly, we will dive into God's word to see why that is. Um, because there are some passages in scripture that seem as if they're pointing to, um, you know, us being able to do that, to be able to, you know, say what we want, to declare what we want and it be. Um, but when we take a good look at God's word and we really look at it in context, we will discover that the Bible isn't contradicting itself, nor is it giving man a certain type of 
of power that only belongs to God, but rather it's exalting God and showing us the magnificent power that only God holds and how we should orient ourselves in light of the truth of who he is. And so I know this won't be easy for many people to hear, especially if this is something that you affirm and believe in, um, but I would hope and I have prayed that the Lord would allow your heart and your mind to be receptive to what we'll discuss today and that you will really see scripture with fresh eyes, even if you have believed this thing for years on years on years, that you would just take a fresh look at the text and say, you know what, let me really just be kind of unbiased in this and let's see what Ayana has to say. Um, because for centuries and, and just looking at church history, um, and looking at church history, if we're talking like church, church history, Bible church history, like looking at what the disciples did and did not do, what the apostles did and did not do, um, you know, after Jesus taught on certain things or after reading and having access to certain scriptures, that if we see in church history that this isn't something that was practiced or possible, that we should look back on our past and say, hmm, if we are affirming these things now in the present, maybe somebody went wrong and it might likely highly possibly not might not be the people from the past that went wrong in this but us um, because we know as sheep that we are we are prone to wander and stray away from the truth of God's word so let's get into it and we're going to start in Matthew chapter 21 verses 18 through 22 I will be reading primarily from the English Standard Version all right, so guys, this is one of the, or should I say ladies, <laughs> this is one of the main texts that are used to support the idea or fallacy, if you will, that we can speak things into existence, which we cannot, as I stated earlier. Um, so let's take a look at what this text actually says. And it reads, in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Sorry if you guys can hear me turning pages. Y'all already know how I feel about that if y'all listen to previous episodes. <laughs> All right, first things first, let's address who this text is talking about. So in verse 18, we see a couple of he's. He was returning. He became hungry. Um, that he is Jesus. So when we read this, we need to read it as in the morning, as Jesus was returning to the city, Jesus became hungry and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, Jesus went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And Jesus said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. So there's two people or two, yeah, two people, groups, whatever involved in this. And that's Jesus and his disciples. So that is our kind of characters we're working with or people that we're working with in this particular text. And that's very important to note um, because, again, it's so easy to read ourselves into the text and put our thing, ourselves in places where we shouldn't. So it's, it's good to say off the jump that this text is highlighting Jesus and his disciples. 
Alrighty. And then we see again in verse 20, when the disciples saw it, they marveled. So there are the they, Jesus is the he. All right. So Jesus, you know, he's, it's the morning time. He's returning to the city. He becomes hungry and he sees a fig tree by the wayside and he goes to it and he finds nothing on it, but only leaves. And he says to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And this is known in Bible history as Jesus cursing the fig tree, which after he says that to the fig tree, it withers immediately. All right. And so as we go on in the passage, we see the disciples are astonished. They're marveled and they're asking Jesus, like, how did this happen? Like, how did you do this? And Jesus answers them and he doesn't answer them in a way that's, you know, maybe common to us. But he says, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree. But even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. So on and so forth. Now, something that's important to note here is that oftentimes when people use this text to affirm or validate their stance on speaking things to existence, um, they often just focus on the part of the, if you um, speak to a mountain or if you say to a mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. But the rest of the passage is kind of like, oh, we're just going to toss that on the side because this actually tells why my position is right. But we know that each chapter is housed in a book and each verse is housed in a chapter. So when we are looking at the text, we can't just isolate verses alone and, and draw these doctrines and beliefs from them. But we must look at it as a holistic thing because the Bible has a storyline. And you guys have probably heard me talk about this before. There's a meta narrative, And that simply means that from Genesis to Revelation, there is a story being told, a redemption story, a fall of the fall, creation, um, just God establishing covenant with his people, him instituting laws, him revealing his character, him saying, hey, y'all aren't obeying the law. Y'all can't be made righteous by the law. I'm going to send my son. And how all of that plays out um, up until the consummation, the final consummation, which Jesus will return back for his bride. Well, all, not all of us, but those who are saved will go to heaven and we'll whip a nae and do all that fun stuff. I don't know if we're actually going to do that in heaven, so that's not inerrant by any means, but I thought it sounded cool. <laughs> but yes, when we're, when we're looking at the text, we have to make sure that we're not isolating things because that's how we become little heretics and that's how we um, just wind up in error. So we can't just look at what people often look at. Uh, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown to, into a sea, it will happen. And just say, oh, you know what? I can say that to a mountain and it'll actually move. So let's back up a little bit and address kind of leading up to this statement that Jesus makes, which actually has a lot more behind it than we may first see upon first look. So we will talk about this a little more in the episode because another scripture that we're going to dive into does address this and I go more into detail about it. However, if we look in verse 19, when Jesus sees the fig tree by the wayside and he goes to it and he finds nothing but only leaves on it. This is very, very important, okay? Because there's something to note about fig trees in this. When fig trees are bearing fruit, the, the fruit comes not too far behind the leaves. So when Jesus goes to this fig tree, 
looking for food because he's hungry. The Bible tells us that for a reason, that Jesus is hungry because he's looking and expecting this fig tree that he walks upon to actually have something to satisfy his hunger. But when he goes to it, he only sees leaves. There's no figs. There's no fruit. So this tells us that something has happened to the fig tree. Something in the fig tree's developmental process, something in its growth has been stunted. Something's not right. And Jesus notices that. And that's why he says to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. Because again, with fig trees, when they are blooming, when they are growing and getting ready to produce fruit, the leaves typically come, usually always with any tree, a uh, fruit tree before the actual fruit. And so when Jesus is going again to this fig tree, he's expecting to see some fruit, but he doesn't see any fruit. Therefore, he curses it because this fig tree is giving the appearance that it's bearing fruit and it's not. Doesn't that sound like something we've heard before? All throughout the New Testament, we are seeing this constant admonition to bear fruit, to remain in Christ, to dwell, to stay. Stay and abide in the Father. We see this in John 15. So when we're talking about this whole fruit thing here and this tree, that should bring our antennas up and say, hey, this sounds like something else. And it does. It sounds like John 15. Um, and so where, where um, the, the Father will prune us if we're bearing fruit so that we may bear more fruit. But in this instance, the fig tree isn't. And so when Jesus curses the fig tree, the fig tree withers at once, verse 19 says. And so then the disciples come up on it and they're like, whoa, wow, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answers them. And this is the part that just kind of, you know, gets a stumble sometimes. Truly, I say to you, if you have faith, put some brackets around that. If you have faith, that's important. Mark that. And do not doubt you will not only do what has been done in the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Now, another note to um, make a, a reminder of that in the book of Matthew, this book is revealing who Christ is. This book is revealing to the Jews and the Gentiles who Christ is. It's it's reminding the, uh, the Jews that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Look nowhere else. This is him. This is who he's going to be. And so keeping in mind what the entire book of Matthew is kind of highlighting in the theme of it, we're deviating from the entire book and theme of the book of Matthew when we kind of go off on a, on a, um, on a uh, exit, the wrong, take the wrong exit and say, hey, this entire story where Jesus is talking about something not bearing fruit or more so people not bearing fruit, which we'll talk about later. And we just want to highlight the part about speaking to something and telling it to move and it does it. We are totally missing the overarching narrative that's weaving itself through scripture and more uh, specifically what we're learning through the book of Matthew. Now, Matthew had a Jewish and Gentile audience. And so when he's saying certain things, the Jews' ears are going to perk up when they're hearing certain things because it's common in their, in their culture and their whatever to know certain words and phrases. It's just like us when we are having conversations with people. And um, if I say, what are those? And you have 
any like recollection of, I think it came out on Vine or something where that phrase went viral or something like that. And if I say that to you, you're like, oh, I know what she's talking about because that's a part of our culture. And so when we're hearing different things or reading different things in scripture and we're kind of like, hmm, this seems kind of contradictory to what Jesus has been teaching in the whole in the whole entire New Testament to us, that we need to take a step back and say, hey, maybe there's something here that I'm not really getting or understanding clearly because I'm not the first audience that heard this or read this. And again, that's something we have to guard against, ladies. We have to guard against looking at scripture like we are the primary first audience. We are several audiences removed from scripture in the sense that when we read, we're not reading a letter specifically directly written to us here in present day times. Does scripture speak to our situations and does scripture, does God speak to us through scripture? Yeah, he does. But we have to pay homage and we have to pay respect to the original author, authors and the original audiences when we are going through the Bible. And so where we see the have um, the be taken up and thrown into a sea, it will happen saying that to a mountain and it moving. That is a metaphor that was common in Jewish literature. So this isn't me in an actual physical do this and it'll happen. But this is common if you go anywhere throughout the Old Testament, which I will list um, some scripture references in the show notes that you can take a look at on your own time. But if you go out anywhere throughout the Old Testament and you're reading just kind of this Jewish literature, you're seeing that these metaphors are often used in the book of Psalms and Isaiah. They're everywhere. And so when we're reading this, we can't read it like 2018 believer I can speak to a mountain and tell it to do something it's going to do it but rather put yourself in the seat and shoes of those who would have had direct experience and direct access to the text or listening to these things before we did or reading these things before we did and say hmm this author's communicating something important and they're communicating it to this audience first what are they trying to say to these people? And that's why it's so helpful to get to know the audience before we kind of get too deep into our Bible study. So that way we're reading with fresh eyes and focused eyes and saying, hey, this is about someone else before it is about me. So again, where Jesus is saying, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And verse 22 says, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Okay. And this particular story can be found in other gospels as well. We see it in the gospel of Luke and which we will talk about later, I, I think. Yes. Uh, we see it in the gospel of Mark. And so we get a little more added to the story in another gospel that kind of helps us flesh it out some more. But on a basic level, Jesus is doing something that we commonly do to the people that we know in real life today. We will make specific, we will say specific words and, and coin specific phrases and use certain things with certain people because we have a relationship with them and we are a part of the same culture. And so if I say something to someone who knows me or who lives in the United States and they know who our president is, if I say a particular word or phrase, they're going to know exactly what I mean. In the same way, this is what Jesus is doing here with his disciples. And then also, when we look over at verse 22, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. 
This also trips people up a lot because they're isolating this particular passage outside of what the Bible teaches holistically. This is what Satan did. This is what Eve did in the garden. They took a piece and Eve took a, a distorted piece of what God said. And Satan did too. And they, they formed a whole doctrine on it, right? Like God said, don't do this. And Eve added to what God said. Satan took away from what he said. And now we have sin entering into humanity and everything just being messed up and fallen and broken. And so we don't want to do that. <laughs> but if we look at verse 22, there's a cross reference in the Bible that helps us better understand how we can reconcile what Jesus is saying here with the, what the rest of the Bible is teaching. And that is found in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. I'm going to read that again. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything, caveat, according to his will, he hears us. And so let's read those two in tandem. Jesus says in Matthew 21, 22, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And he's also linking because he's God. First John 5, 14. And this is a confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So Jesus isn't contradicting what the what first John 5 14 is saying if anything they're in agreement that when we ask things according to God's will because we are dwelling in him and delighting in him and abiding in him he will lead us to pray things that are in accordance with his will and even if it's not in accordance with his will he will redirect us through community through scripture reading through prayer to show us that that's not really what he would want for us and even in looking at Jesus' consistency again, in the same book, when he teaches the disciples how to pray, what does he teach them? He teaches them to pray according to the will of the Father. Simple as that. So again, we have to connect all of Scripture together. Scripture's already connected, but we have to mindfully do that when we're reading. And ultimately, this entire passage is highlighting faith. Faith in who? Faith in Christ Jesus. Clearly the fig tree that's being spoken of here that Jesus curses for not bearing fruit, it just has the view, the look of something that's fruitful, but it's actually not. He's teaching that this particular people that we'll talk about later in Mark, uh, in our Mark reference, that when you are not abiding in God and you're not abiding in his word and his law and you're not adhering to his statues, you will, you can be his people all day long, but you will not bear good fruit. You will not bear lasting things. And then again, the faith that he's saying, truly, I say to you in verse 21, if you have faith and do not doubt, if you have faith and do not doubt, who is your faith supposed to be in? What is the book of Matthew revealing to all of those who were the primary audience and those who were the removed or secondary or third dairy audience, that Jesus is a promised Messiah. This is who he is. And again, if we're looking at the whole book, the consistent message is 
Trust me. Believe me. Repent of your sin. Take up your cross and follow me. Who is the me? Jesus Christ. So if we were to have faith in anything, it isn't in our ability to do these things that we think we have the power to do. No, it's our faith in Christ who can do all things. It's our faith in Christ who has the power and the will and the blueprint to do everything that he wants us to do. So when we're looking at Matthew chapter 21 verses 18 through 22 and 1 John chapter 5 verse 14 and, and reading these alongside each other, alongside again with everything that Jesus is teaching in the book of Matthew, we can walk away with a right view of this text, not trying to use it as bait or proof that we can do things that we can't do, but to look at the God who can do it and the one that we should put our faith and trust in because he's capable of these things. And we can trust him to be who he says he is. Whew. All right, moving right along. So our next scripture we're going to take a look at, in-depth look at, is Romans chapter 4, verse 17. Now, y'all, I remember so distinctly. Uh, this was a couple of years ago, but um, I was following this young lady and um, she had posted about speaking things into existence. And so I was like, interesting. So I read her caption and everything. And in it, she quoted this verse. And so um, I, I went in my Bible and I looked it up and I'm like, wait, how is she taking away from this verse that she can speak things into existence? And literally just reading the verse before just really tells you what, what's, Paul is saying here. Um, and so what we are going to do is look at this widely used and often misinterpreted verse um, that's used to affirm or validate a stance on speaking things to it into existence and see what it actually says and what it actually means. So the verse reads, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Alrighty, so that's verse 17. There's a lot there. Let's break it down. If we just even look at this verse by itself, it's enough to totally tear down this belief that we can speak things into existence. So the first part of this verse says, as it is written. Anytime you see an as it is written in the Bible, I want you to always put some brackets or fill goals or whatever you want to around it. Circle it, highlight it, do whatever you like to do, color pencil, whatever. Because when you see the as it is written phrases in the Bible, you're, you're mainly going to see it in the New Testament um, because it's quoting the Old Testament. And that's all as it is written means that it's quoting the Old Testament. So what we're about to read, and it's like God just handed us like a little cheat sheet and said, hey, sis, use this as you're studying scripture so you don't get off track or off base. As it is written. So the next things that you are going to read after as it is written is going to be quoting the Old Testament. That's very helpful. I wish I knew that like five years ago when I was walking around here thinking I knew who my husband was because I had read something in scripture that I believe that. Anyways, so as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Let's stop there. If your Bible has quotation marks around it, which it should, if you're reading the ESV, it does, that I have made you. So I there is God. That's God saying that to Abraham in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, okay? 
circle the I. Anytime you see an I or, or me or whatever he referring to God, put a circle around it. So that is a reminder, a visual reminder to you to stay within the bounds of scripture and not think that that I is you. Because that's where we go wrong with this particular verse, that we say I is me and everything following is going to be talking about me, which it isn't. So I is God have made you that you there is not you, but it's Abraham, because who is the father of many nations? Abraham. Who does God make the father of many nations? Abraham. I, God, have made you, Abraham, the father of many nations. The quote stops there. So we know already, as it is written, it's telling us to look back to the Old Testament. This quote right here, God is speaking to Abraham, and he says this to him in the book of Genesis. And then we see in the presence of the God in whom he, Abraham, believed, comma, who gives life to the dead, who is God? God only can give life to the dead. I don't know about y'all, but resuscitating somebody is not giving life to the dead. Only God can make dead people live. Book of Ephesians talks about that in chapter two. If you need somewhere else is a secondary proof text that only God can give life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is known in theologian land as ex nihilo, which literally basically means that God creates something out of nothing, that God has always existed. He was there before anything was created. He is not created. He has always existed, self-existent. He doesn't need anything else to exist, but God was present at creation. He was the only thing present at creation because nothing was created until he spoke it into existence. So when verse 17 of chapter four says that he gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. What is this pointing us to? It's pointing us back to the beginning of our Bible, Genesis, where God speaks literal creation into existence. Now, if you don't believe me after that, let's back up several verses and let's look at what the chapter four of Romans is actually focusing on. Chapter four of Romans is focusing on Abraham being justified faith, justified by faith, and also that the promise is being realized through faith. The promise that God gave Abraham is being realized through his faith in God. Let's start at verse 13, where the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Keep reading as it is written. I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, period. 
Doesn't that change the way that we read this verse when we read the previous verses before? And why don't we just continue after a couple more to see how that better uh, helps frame our understanding. In hope, verse 18, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he, has, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Another quote there. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted unto us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What a mouthful, Paul. And if we're just looking at Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 through 22, and this passage, Romans 4, chapter, or Romans chapter 4, verses let's say 13 through the end 25, we see this common theme of faith, faith in God, faith in Christ, faith in God, faith in the triune Godhead. That is what moves mountains. That is what changes things. God's ability to do all things because he is God and believing in that, that is what changes our realities. It doesn't mean that we can literally say, hey, I'm going to get this job. And because I said it, it's going to happen. If God wanted to grant you that job because he was going to grant it to you anyways, you're going to get that job irregardless if he spoke it into existence. I can just only imagine just thinking like how faulty that phrases when we're using it for ourselves because that means that for everything we did not speak into existence why would it happen either a the onus is going to be on god or it's going to be on us and things happening or working out for the good of god's people and what's scary is that unbelievers quote this all the time they know the bible they take things and they quote it and they say oh i'm speaking it into existence and, da, 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 da. and it's just like okay well how Let's just hypothetically say believers had the power to do so. Why do unbelievers feel like that extends to them as well? Shouldn't, right? If it only belongs to God's children. But that's the thing. It doesn't belong to unbelievers or God's children. It belongs to God alone. And we have to keep that in view as we are looking through these passages. Before we move on to the last uh, scripture reference that we're going to dig into. I just want to briefly go over to Mark chapter 11 verses 12 through 14 and kind of just sum up what I was saying earlier with uh, the book of Matthew chapter 21 verses 18, 18 through 22 when I was referencing just the kind of the good details on the fig tree. So it reads, on the following day when they came from Bethany he was hungry and seeing the distance of fig tree and leaf he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, uh, what I was mentioning earlier, the specific reference of the fig tree in Mark 
chapter 11, verse 13, is to Israel. Because in the Old Testament, the fig tree often served as a metaphor for the state of Israel and their standing before God. And this is important because Jesus cursing the tree was not something that was to be taken lightly. He was pointing out the hypocrisy of those who in appearance seem to be bearing fruit, yet aren't actually producing the fruit that comes from truly being in him. This is a brief yet detailed lesson that finds its further affirmation in John chapter 15, which we discussed earlier. And I want us to take a quick look at Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13, to see exactly what I mean about the fig tree often representing or referring to Israel in the Old Testament. So we know this isn't a stretch for this verse to be pointing to um, Mark chapter 11, verse 13, mainly because when Jeremiah is given the business to Israel, this whole entire book is just like, y'all get it together. God's calling you to repent. This is what he's getting ready to do. Y'all need to get it together. So in verse 13, it reads, when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered and what I gave them has passed away from them. If you know anything about the history of Israel, you don't even really have to know a lot, but just bare minimum. Israel was a disobedient people. All right. They're constantly testing the Lord, constantly being disobedient. They did have moments of uh, success, but they had a lot of moments of great sin and rebellion against God. And so for God to compare them or to say there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, even the leaves are withered. Not only is he saying, not only are y'all not bearing fruit, but at the bare minimum, the leaves that's supposed to sprout out first, those are withered away too. And this is just telling about the state of Israel and their rebellion against God. How God is seeing them at this time that even though y'all are God's chosen and covenant people, y'all real crazy and y'all need to get it together. And so if we're looking at like a, you know, modern day application for us, we can be like that fig tree at times who is bearing leaves, but no fruit and giving the impression that we're bearing fruit, but we're actually not. And so that's a self-assessment for us to say, hey, if I'm truly in Christ, am I really bearing the fruit, the good fruit? Because we're all going to bear fruit. John chapter 15 talks about that, that whether believer or unbeliever, righteous or unholy, everyone's going to bear some fruit. But the distinction is whether that fruit is good or bad. And we know that only those in Christ will bear good fruit. Everybody else, bad disease trees, he's going to cut them down and throw them in the fire, all right? So again, when Mark chapter 11, verse 13 is making that reference, and also Matthew chapter 21, 18 are making those references to the fig trees, know that it's distinctly Jesus kind of playing on the knowledge they would have of the Old Testament that, hey, this is Israel, y'all. This is how they be. So Make, make note of that. Okay, so now we are nearing the end of this episode and our last scripture we want to dive into. I'll make it swiffy, spiffy, swiffy, what? 
Okay, I'm just gonna use Swiffy because it sounds cool. Um, now, if you're still a skeptic by us nearing the end and you're like, I heard all of that, but you're wrong. Da, 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 da. At the end of the day, it's not me being right or wrong. It's like us believing God's word because God's word's gonna stand even when I'm dead in the ground and he wants us to know him rightly and he wants us to know his word in context. And if we are talking about context, now if we're not talking about context, everything that you're saying could be true. But if we're talking about context and if we're talking about giving uh, and paying respect to the text, paying respect to the God of the text and seeking to know who God is revealing himself to be to us in scripture, then, you know, if by this point you are just, you know, you're like, hey, I done spoke some things into existence. They done happened. So now what? All right, cool. Let's look at Joshua chapter 10 verses 12 through 15, because I believe this one is one that will really just help us to see that even if something just just as hypothetical, even if you said something that happened, which we all know that God is sovereign and he has already declared the end from the beginning, as the Bible tells us. So nothing that we do is new. Right. It's not like, oh, Bill spoke this into existence and I just totally didn't know that was going to happen. It's like, no. Either God ordained for it to happen or he didn't. And just because you uttered a few words into the atmosphere doesn't mean that that your words were the cause of it. But anyways, let's take a look at, um, again, Joshua chapter 10 verses 12 through 15. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. It is, is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. In verse 15, so Joshua returned and all Israel with him in the camp at Gilgal. Now, as a little background on Joshua chapter 10, verses 12 through 15, obviously these verses are housed within a chapter. So what's happening in this chapter? Five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jeremoth, the king of Lachish, lactose intolerant, <laughs> just kidding, and the king of Eglon, they gathered their forces and went up against Joshua and the people of Gibeon. Now, if you look back in uh, chapter nine, the Gibeonites were deceitful to Joshua and lied to him about where they were dwelling. And because of that, there was, you know, this debacle here, but ultimately they came back, they repented and were like, look, bro, we were wrong. We didn't tell you the full truth. Feel free to do to, what, to us whatever you'd like, whatever your God wants to do to us. Feel free to do it. We are wrong. We're sorry. Please forgive us. And so Joshua in response is like, hey, bro, you know, it's not cool, but I'm just going to make it to where you all are just going to be cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord for the rest of your lives. It's like, okay, bro, we can do that. Cool. So 
Now in chapter 10, as everything is happening, now previously God gave these victories to Joshua. He distinctly said in previous chapters that I am going to make you successful and I'm going to be with Israel, right? And so in chapter 10, when all this is going on and these kings are conspiring against Joshua and the Israelites and Gibeon because they heard about how, you know, they heard about Joshua's track record and they heard about how he had captured um, I or A, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, spelled A-I, and he devoted it to destruction. And so the kings are, you know, they're fearful of this and they're fearful of Joshua and they're like, you know, Gibeon's a good city, it's great, it's big, and it's greater than the city of Ai. And all of the people there are warriors. And so the king of Jerusalem, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name because I'm going to butcher it. Um, actually, it's not that hard. Adonizek? Adonizedek? There we go. Um, he's the king of Jerusalem. He sends to Hoham, the king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jeremoth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, <laughs> lactose intolerant, <laughs> excuse me, and to Deborah, king of Deborah, king of Eglon, and he's saying, "Come up to me and help me." This is verse four of chapter ten, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. So they're like, "Okay, we know Joshua's track record. We know that him and Gibeon have linked forces, and the people of Israel, all of them, they're all together. We, we, we can't amount up to that. Let's let's go after them." And so that's what happens to even get to this point, but. Uh, per usual, Joshua consults the Lord and the Lord tells him in verse eight, do not fear them for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua goes up and from Gilgal and the Lord throws the people, the, uh, the kings of Hebron or not Hebron, the kings of um, the Amorites and all of their people up into a panic. And, um, he allows Israel to kill them. <laughs> um, and what's so cool, and I know this sounds really weird because people are dying, but in verse 11, it says, And they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran. The Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So this verse is telling us that God literally made stones rain, like made stones rain from heaven on the people, killed them. And not only did he do that, but he killed more people than the the um the people of Israel were able to the men of Israel and so it's just like wow we're seeing God's power on display yeah people are dying but there was a you know if you go back and read it you can see okay I see why this happened um but we're seeing that God is on display God is the one who's pushing uh, the agenda of jo Joshua. God is the one who is giving him these successes and these victories. And people are noticing that, that there's something different about him. And so as God even again reveals himself two times in this uh, particular chapter where he tells Joshua, don't be afraid, don't fear them. I'm going to give you all the victory. And then while he's doing this, he's like, hey, let me just send some, you know, make it rain some stones. And then these, some, some more people are going to die. And I'm going to, I'm going to do more of the work than you actually will be able to accomplish. Okay. So that's a little backstory to, you know, 
that. And so now as we're reading verses 12 through 15, and Joshua speaks to the Lord, um, in the same time that the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, he, being Joshua, says in the sight of all of Israel, sun stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon, and the sun stood still and the moon stopped. Now, some people might take this out of scripture and say, hey, well, what about Joshua? Joshua told the sun to stand still and the moon to stand and, and the moon um, to, to stop and it happened. Okay, cool. Well, let's flip the page, right? Well, mine is a flip of page. I don't know about your Bible, but it says that those things happened and the sun stopped in the midst of the heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. So verse 14, this is a kicker. All right. This is the kicker for anyone who would want to use this particular chapter or this passage as proof text, validity, whatever, to prove their point, their fault, or their fallacy on why they can speak things into existence. Hypothetically, if you could, pre-Joshua, the Bible says, there has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. Now, something very important to pay attention to in this verse are two things. I'll say three. Um, one, it says that there has been no day like it before or since, right? So even if you believe that you can use this particular scripture as a you know a reasoning behind it, God is saying here that there has been no day like it before or since. So not before Joshua, not since Joshua, and not after Joshua. So that's point number one. Then number two is, it says, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. I looked up the word heeded in the, um, uh, in the Greek, um, and it says that that word heeded means granted the request or consented. Now, in our modern day context, we would see the word heeded and we would think, oh, that means like the Lord kind of just like fell back and let, you know, Joshua do what he wanted to do. But we know throughout the entirety of scripture and the narrative, the meta narrative of scripture, that that isn't the case, that God has not allowed for us to just boss him around. That's not something that he does. That's not in his character. That would go against his nature and character. So when we see this word heated there, it's saying again that he granted the request of man or he consented. He said, okay, I will allow you to do this. But we know that God has foreordained everything. Everything. He's authored everything from the beginning to the end and in between. So if this happened, it wasn't because Joshua just woke up one day and said, hey, I'm going to tell the sun and moon to stop and it's going to happen. No, it's because God in eternity's past said this is going to happen and it did, but he used Joshua in this moment to do it. All right. And then he gives us a disclaimer because he knows how fickle and sinful us human beings are and can be. And he's like, you know what? Somebody's going to come down the line and be like, well, you know, Joshua did it. So no, fam, read verse 14. I'm telling y'all that nobody else is going to ever be able to do this again. Um, and so, and then lastly, the third point would be um, that before the last comma uh, or after the last comma, yeah, after the last comma, for the Lord fought for Israel. And we want to know why God allowed this and did all of this. It is for the purpose of him fighting for Israel. The book of Joshua is showing how God fought 
for Israel. We see again in previous chapters before chapter 10 that God is fighting for his people. No matter how sinful, no matter how rebellious, God endures in his steadfast love. He does not give up on people so easily. He does not give us give up on us so easily as we think he should or would expect him to. And so as he is um as he is fighting for his people, he is setting up these things to happen so that he is fighting for his people and he and they're seeing a tangible result an example of what it looks like for God to fight for his people but even more so we see just God being glorified here people knew who God was it was evident that okay our bro Josh this guy over here he's got some major victories under his belt why who's he with who does he know let me get on his team what is he doing? Who's doing it for him? How's he defeating all of these people? God. God is the one who is leading him. God is the one who is making himself known not only to the Israelites and him showing them who he is, but to everyone surrounding him. When God does things and we see him doing things in the Old Testament, especially because we see this phrase a lot in the Old Testament, for my name's sake, a lot of times where God could have rightly and just been completely at liberty to just throw us aside for his namesake because he's made a covenant with the people he's going to stick to what he said in the beginning for his namesake his namesake being for his character for who he is because God is not a man that he should lie and he cannot go against who he is therefore he's going to do things to show not only the people that he's called to himself who he is but again also those around him to be a witness to the world that there is only one triune God in heaven God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and this is who you need to worship not these false gods that y'all got not your crystals not your energy not your mantras and all this other stuff but the God in heaven who dwells among his people and to just further highlight how God is just glorifying himself in this instance, look how that instance in Joshua chapter 10 affects the way a prophet prays in Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 11. So as Habakkuk is praying from verse 1 on down, when we get to 11, it says, The sun and moon stood still in their place, at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. I'm going to stop there. You can read the rest on your own. But it's so cool to see how Joshua's victory, Joshua's yielding and heeding the Lord's doing, if you will, in that particular chapter, in, ver in chapter 10, we're seeing, again, someone else mentioning it in a prayer. And this is totally okay for us to do as modern-day believers. Reflect on what God has done in the Bible. And when you're praying, and if you don't know how to pray, pray according to who God has revealed himself to be to us in the Word. He has revealed himself to be someone who fights for his people when you're feeling down and out and you're feeling like god where are you or you feel like you're misunderstood or you're in a situation where you're being misrepresented and your name is being slandered reflect on who god is and who he has said and revealed himself to be in scripture and pray those things god i know that you helped joshua in his time of need i know that you fought for your people of and um 
in uh, Joshua chapter 10, I know that you gave the Israelites a victory. I know that you interceded for them and you intervened for them. Lord, would you do the same for me? I know you're faithful. I know you can do the same thing. And that's totally good because we see it here that Habakkuk does this. In the book of Habakkuk, which is a short three chapters, he's, you know, he's at, you know, kind of distressed because Judah's cutting up and he's just like, Lord, you know, and the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, they cutting up. It's like, Lord, when will you bring justice to your people and justice in this whole like scenario right here? And so in the first two chapters, we kind of see Habakkuk just like lamenting and then we see God answering, answering him. Um, and then in chapter three, it's just kind of like a wake up call to him, like, hey, this is who God is. And I can trust him. I can trust in God's sovereignty. I can trust in God's power. And that is ultimately what the work of God does in these situations. So anytime we see uh, a believer in the Bible, an example in the Bible doing something great, that should point us to the God who enables them to do something great. That should point us to the one in whom we can rely on and trust in to do the great things that we are just quite frankly, incapable of doing on our own. So ladies, that's today's episode in a nutshell. Um, can we speak things into existence? Absolutely not. And you know what? I find something so comforting in that, knowing that I can't speak things into existence um, because it's it's a reassuring that while our words do have power, because the Bible does tell us that life and death is in the power of the tongue, but it does not mean that you can create realities with your words. It does mean that your words have the power to build up a person or tear them down in the instance that if I go and tell another believer that they just suck at life, that they're worthless, that they're nothing, that they will never be anything, guess what that can do to a person? That can literally tear them down. It can make them feel inadequate. It can make them feel like God doesn't love them. It can influence them to feel as if that God did not create them in his image. Like that is the reality of that scripture. Not that I can literally create life with my words. I can't, if that's the case, people who miscarry or people who have infertility, you know, issues and all those different things, they will literally just be able to speak a baby into their womb and it happened. But we know that that is not how God works. And that is not how we are designed to work. We are designed to submit to the God in heaven and we are designed to seek him and petition and pray and ask for his will to be our will, that we will seek after his plans and not our own. And so in, you know, life and, and death being in the power of the tongue, again, doesn't mean we can create realities, but it does mean that we have the power to build a person up or to tear them down. When you build another believer up, what do you do? You encourage them with the word of God. You encourage them with truth about who God is, not point them more to themselves. If they feel inadequate, say, hey, I know you feel inadequate in this way, but this is who God is. Remember the story of Moses when Moses was like, hey, I can't do this, God. Like, you're going to have to find another guy for the job. And he's like, hey, no, I am who I am. I will be with you. And that is what that means. And there's a great, great, great article by H.B. Uh, Charles Jr., um, that he wrote on that particular topic. And I'm going to put that in the show notes as well so you all can give that a good read. But remember that all of Scripture agrees with all of scripture. Scripture interprets scripture. If you ever come across a passage or saying or anything, and you're just like, this thing has been chopped up and isolated the heck out of everything else, take a moment, write what you're having questioned down, 
look up those cross-references and, and, and read the whole entire chapter that that verse or verses are housed in and see where else in the Bible are these things discussed because God is never going to say something in his word that is just completely devoid of the connection of the rest of the story that he is consistently telling throughout all of scripture. God is a consistent God. He's not inconsistent. He's not going to give you half-truths and partial truths. He's going to give you the whole thing. And when he does and he has already, we're going to see it all just fit in like a cool big puzzle piece. So can we speak things into existence? Absolutely not. And that's a good thing because our God in heaven can, has, and does. And because he did, we could even be formed as, as humans. We could even be made in the image of God. And we can trust that him holding that power and being perfect and us not being perfect. Like just imagine what kind of crazy mess we'd be in if we held that power and we're still imperfect. We would be doing all kind of crazy stuff. But if we trust in the God who can do these things and did do these things, then we know and that we're in good hands, especially if we're in him. So I hope that encouraged you ladies today, challenged you guys, if you're listening as well, that you will go back through these scriptures and just literally read them for what they say. That's a big part of Bible study comprehension. What does it say? Because if we're just looking at what it says, we won't really get too far and try and interpret it wrongly because we're actually just saying, hey, this is what reads here. Something new that I would love to do on each episode of the show is open up a time for questions and answers. What I'd love for you ladies to do is to join me by going to the Biblically Sound Woman's website, clicking the podcast tab, and going to the link that will link you to a Google Doc where you can anonymously submit questions that you have about any area of the Christian life. And episode by episode, we'll answer a new question on on the show. So definitely go do that. I'm really excited about adding that as a feature you know, kind of segment to our show because a lot of ladies have different questions about different things. And I think sometimes it can be even better to be able to answer them vocally on a podcast episode. And that way for anybody else who listens, who's wondering the same thing, or maybe never thought to ask that question, they can be edified as well. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. You can keep up with the ministry by checking out our website, thebiblicallysoundwoman.com, following us on social media, signing up for our newsletter, and subscribing to the podcast to stay up to date on the latest episodes. And we would love if you would leave a review and let other ladies who may be interested in the podcast know how this has blessed you. By scripture we live, by scripture we die. This has been your host, Ayana Thomas. Till next time.